You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NEJM Audio Perspectives, provided in cooperation with the New England Journal of Medicine. Your moderator for this discussion is Dr. Thomas Lee, Network President at Partners Healthcare System in Boston, and an Associate Editor of the Journal. Welcome to a Perspective Roundtable from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Tom Lee, Network President for Partners Healthcare System, and an Associate Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm also a primary care physician, but you don't need to be a primary care physician to know that there's a crisis in primary care today. You can just look as we do in our newspapers and see the headlines today and see the shortage of primary care physicians and the difficulty that patients are having getting access to good care. For primary care physicians, however, the perspective is one where there is too much to do, too many patients, too many demands, too much information flowing through, too little time to do a good job. These problems are exacerbated today by a compensation system in which there are many other options that pay considerably better, and the compensation system does not necessarily reward you for doing what matters most. How did we get there and how can we fix this? We're going to try to discuss this topic today with four leading thinkers on health policy in general and primary care in particular. My colleagues Tom Bodenheimer from the Center for Excellence in Primary Care at the University of California, San Francisco. My colleagues from Harvard Medical School, uh, Alan Goro and Kate Treadway, and Barbara Starfield from the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins. Welcome and thank you for joining. Now I want to start by recalling how medicine was when we came out of school. And going back to the late 70s, the role models for my colleagues and friends were generalists. They were physicians who would go to the bedside with their patients and they would see them in the office, see them all, all hours. They seemed to know everything and they would do whatever it took to comfort their patients and help them. What went wrong? Why aren't these folks the role models today? It's interesting. There's a lot of conflicting uh, reasons that residents and particularly medical students um, don't choose to go into primary care. A lot of residents say to me, you have to know too much. Seeing the subspecialist who has the super precise knowledge of that specialty seems to be something that they can understand and feel that they could become expert in that area. So they're afraid of the sort of enormity of the breadth of primary care. In addition, primary care, they watch primary care doctors who are very stressed and who are at the bottom of the reimbursement scale. They come out of medical school with enormous debt. So they turn away from what many started out in medical school thinking they were going to do to something that seems more manageable to them. And I think the last thing is because hours are so fragmented and their care is so fragmented in their training, and as an aside, I would say I don't want to see uh, residents have to work the 120 hours that we all worked, but on the other hand, what's been sacrificed is a sense of continuity and of responsibility for a patient that robs them of discovering how fulfilling it is to see a patient go through an episode of acute illness and walk in well to your office and what happens when you have that experience. Well, you know, as I've listened to you, I mean, I, I hear, you know, three factors that, um, frankly, I'm going to ask you to rank order and tell me which you think are most important in trying to address as we try to bring along a generation of physicians to 
take good care of patients. Okay, one of those factors, of course, is money. Uh, a second factor is prestige. And then a third area is the controllable lifestyle, where controllable also means that you actually feel like you can do a good job. I've never gone home feeling I've done everything that I needed to do, but it's certainly gotten much worse. And, and just to give you a, a, the, an example, about maybe six years ago, I got a letter from a subspecialist, an oncologist, about my patient with breast cancer that was now 10 years old and inactive. And at the bottom of his note, it said, this visit took 30 minutes. When I saw my 70-year-old patient, not only did I talk to her about her breast cancer, but we went through her neuropathic pain, her osteoarthritis, her hypertension, her hyperlipidemia, uh, her grief over the recent loss of her husband, a complete physical exam, including a pap smear, arranging all of her labs, making sure I had done her prescriptions and arranged her screening colonoscopy. And he was reimbursed at a higher rate than I was. Now, there is, I think, among primary care doctors, a tremendous amount of distress over the inequity of that situation and the fact that we are increasingly time compressed to do a great number of things. And I think that, so I, I would say the feeling that you are really in a state of being constantly overwhelmed combined with feeling that you are very underpaid. It's the work-life problem. That's the, in my number one, it sounds like it's everyone's number one. And the, the work-life problem is, it's the tyranny of the 15-minute visit. Mm -hmm. If you come in to your practice in the morning and you see that you have 12 to 15 15-minute visits in the morning and another 12 to 15 15-minute visits in the afternoon, and you know you can't do it all in 15 minutes. I mean, it's been shown that just to do chronic and preventive care for a panel of 2,300 patients, which is the average panel size in the United States, just to do chronic and preventive care would take 18 hours a day to do it right. The 15-minute visit is not possible to do chronic, preventive, acute care, plus building relationships with patients, plus care coordination, all the things we have to do. We have to change that. So what happens if we don't fix these problems? What if the supply of primary care physicians gets worse, access just gets worse? Um, Give me a scenario. What, Barbara, what do you think will happen? We can predict, I think, with relatively great certainty what's going to happen, and it's going to be increasing relative declines in health of the uh, American population. That around mid-century, we were pretty much at the top, and it, with each decade, we have fallen further and further behind, so that now the United States falls somewhere between 25th and 35th in the world um, in terms of pretty much any health indicator that you want to look at. And we know now from various types of evidence that the more and the better primary care you have, the better are the health indicators uh, in the area or in the country. Uh, in this country, the states with higher primary care to physician, uh, uh, physician to population ratios have overall better health, however you measure the health. And the impact of costs is equally striking. The more primary care we give relative to specialty care, the lower the costs. So we have a cost imperative and we have a quality imperative to fix this issue. So let's, let's turn to that. There has to be a better way. Now, Tom, you've been describing some new models. What is that better way? There are people who are, who are beginning to develop what I would call the primary care practice of the future. And it's very different than the primary care practice of the past. So number one, if a, when a primary care physician walks into the office, it's not saying, okay, I have 30, 15 minute visits that I have to accomplish before I can go home tonight. 
the primary care physician will walk into the office and say, with, with my team, I am going to spend my day trying to make my panel of patients as healthy as possible. That might be a visit, traditional visit. It might be working with people on email, on phone, on group visits. It might be having a panel manager who says, this is the panel of patients. These are the people who are overdue for mammograms, for pap smears, for immunizations. These are the people in my panel with diabetes, whose hemoglobin A1Cs are too high, or who haven't had a hemoglobin A1C in the past year. We're going to contact these people. We're going to bring them in for the lab tests they need. And if they're out of control with regard to their chronic disease, they're going to meet with a nurse who has a physician written protocol as to how to increase their medications to get their, their um, sugars back under control. So we're going to look at the whole panel of patients and try to make that panel healthy, not just concentrate on the 15-minute visit. I think that the primary care physician of the future should probably see about 10 patients a day, should spend real time with those patients. Those should be patients that are complicated, that really need a physician to take care of them. Well, I listen to you and I think, and what a wonderful world it would be. I mean, is this an abstraction? Is this a pipe dream? Is it happening? Is anyone doing this and doing it successfully? Um, some of the large integrated systems are beginning to do this. So take health partners in Minneapolis. They have a whole system which they call the pre-visit, the visit, the post-visit, and the between-visit care. In the pre-visit, a medical assistant makes sure that everyone's chronic and preventive care tasks are taken care of and does medication reconciliation to make sure that the patient's medications uh, are being taken as the physician or the nurse practitioner has ordered. In the visit, it's a, tra it's a traditional physician visit, but then the, the post-visit would be making sure the patient understood what happened in the visit. We know that 50% of patients leave an office visit without knowing what happened in the visit. So having a medical assistant, or in our case, a health coach, making sure the patient understood what happened in the visit, working with them on behavior change, and then phone calls between the visits to make sure, were you able to get the medications that you were prescribed? Did you have any problem with the copays? Did you have any problem with the formularies? Do you still remember how to take the medications? Are you taking the medications? If not, why not? And what can we do to try to uh, take care of that problem? What will it take in terms of the, the payment structure and the organization of medicine for these models to reach their potential? Well, some of the systems that do the kinds of things that Tom is talking about actually redeploy their resources. They have an internal rule for what gets paid for and how it gets paid for and who gets what. So what they're doing is they're working within right now a distorted payment system, but they take those dollars and then they reallocate them in an intelligent, non-distorting way. In the last 25 years, we have learned so much about what primary care is that it's almost a crime, not to put it to good use. We know what the principles of primary care are, and it is almost certainly the case that there are many ways, or at least several ways, that you can accomplish these principles. Now, there are basically four organizational principles. One is you have to define your population. You have to know who you're responsible for, and the people have to know that they have a place to go. That's the defined population. That's one organizational feature. The second one is that that place has to be comprehensive. It has to provide a broad range of services. Okay? You can't be sending patients to this doctor, this doctor, this doctor. And it's probably why family physicians on the whole, looking at it from a population person point of view, do better than any, any other kind of primary care physicians because they're more comprehensive. They do a broader range of services. Okay, the third thing is some mechanism of continuity. You have to have some way to transfer information. 
you know, there are lots of ways you could do that. Electronic medical records is a, probably a very good one, but it's not the only way. And the fourth thing is accessible, okay? Four organizational features that you have to have in order to have good primary care. And the team may help doing one or more of those, but it's not that you have a team. It's that you're trying to accomplish a certain function, and sometimes a team helps a lot. And these principles of organization then translate into two essential features, which we basically in our quality systems don't focus on at all. What's the patient's problem, and has the problem improved? We know the whole healthcare system has to change, and the re including the re reimbursement structure, to get to some kind of relationship where we pursue these principles. But what do physicians have to do? I think that what a medical team uh, accomplishes is it offloads the things that are not, that are very important, the preventive screening, et cetera. But it, it, allow, it then, by offloading that, allows you to once again focus on what is the patient's agenda. And I think, you know, obviously there are dangers to the idea of a medical team. I mean, if the, if the doctor is actually never seeing anyone, but just sort of saying to the nurse practitioner, do this, or the medical assistant, do this, that's not going to be rewarding for anybody. But I think taking away from the physician those tasks which are easily accomplished and which also for most patients don't have a huge emotional agenda going on with them, would allow us to, to have more time with our patients, to be aware of what they're worried about, and to do the things that I think most primary care doctors do, which is to show up at a patient's bed when they've had their mastectomy just to say hi. And that, or to call a patient, I know you just got your first dose of chemo, how did it go today? Well, but I wonder if it's more than just offloading work. I wonder if there's something more to being a good team member. I think that a lot of our colleagues have difficulty working in teams, even if you surround them with teams. They have trouble delegating, even if you give them people to delegate to. Is this something, do you see this as a problem? And if it is a problem, what's the answer? Do we wait for the generation who feels that way to retire? Well, you know, teams are difficult. If you look at the research on teams, a lot of, there's a lot of dysfunctional, there are a lot of dysfunctional teams around. And one thing is that if you have a team of six or eight people and they all sort of have to know what's happening, there's a huge amount of communication needed to make sure that everyone knows what's, what's happening with a particular patient. That takes a lot of time, takes a lot of energy. Also, if you have a team of six or eight people, probably one of the people is going to be difficult to deal with. But just statistically, it's more likely with a large team. We've been working with small teams, team of two. We call it a teamlet. It's a small team, part of the bigger team. And it's really a throwback to the old days when you had like a, a solo doc, primary care doc, who was in an office with his nurse. It's always his, of course, nurse. It was always his back then. And they worked together like for 30 years. And the, so the physician really knew what the nurse was good at. They worked together. There were only two people, so the communication was relatively easy, and the patients had trust in both of them. We were trying to reestablish that kind of teamlet idea because it, it makes much easier the team concept. Now, now, you may need to have a larger team around that, that little teamlet sort of focus, but um, teams, if we don't change the panel size, I think we need teams. Um, and I don't think we can change, reduce the panel size if we have an increasing shortage of primary care physicians. The panel size is going to go up.
You've been listening to NEJM Audio Perspectives, provided in cooperation with the New England Journal of Medicine. The following part of this discussion continues next week on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals.